Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Bill McKibben. He's a founder of the environmental organization 350.org and was among the early advocates for action on global warming. He's the author of 17 books, including the bestsellers The End of Nature, Earth, and Deep Economy. We discuss his latest book today, Falter, Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out? He lays out exactly what's at stake for humans on the planet and wonders whether we will do what's necessary to save ourselves in time. His proposed solutions are relatively simple, but they will require the buy-in from all of us. We're now in the early and dangerous stages of climate change. And uh, it's not just that the rising sea is erasing coastline and cities. It's that as the temperature goes up, it gets harder and harder in the continental interiors to continue doing things like farming. You've seen the droughts that have driven a million refugees to the U.S. southern border. That's been enough to discombobulate our politics. Now, instead of a million, contemplate the fact that the U.N. thinks we could have a billion climate refugees in the course of this century. Try to imagine what kind of world, how kind of crowded and small that world's going to be. That's why we've got to slow this down. We'll be talking about how dire the situation already is and that saving the environment is actually deeply conservative. There are practical ways for us to change behavior and reduce our individual carbon footprint. Finally, he reminds us that we must join others to change the political and economic ground rules for polluters. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Well, my pleasure to be with you. Falter is a call to arms for all humans to save our planet and our humanity. I found it incredibly engaging and hopeful, almost optimistic, about how humanity can and hopefully will prevail. How did you come to write this book at this time? Well, that's the good question. 30 years ago, when I was 27 to 28, I wrote The End of Nature, and it was the first book about climate change for a general audience. And back then, we were in the business of issuing warnings. Uh, Here's what the scientists say will happen if we don't get our act together. And then we didn't get our act together. So 30 years later, I sort of wanted to (laughs) bring those warnings up to date, except now they're not warnings anymore. Now they're bulletins from the front line, you know, from the smoke-filled forests of California or the increasingly soggy cities of the global coasts or, or on and on and on. We're now in the early and dangerous stages of climate change. And so in part, I wanted to chronicle that and just get across what we have to do if we're going to keep it from getting any worse than it has to get. One of the most shocking statistics that you cite in the book is that the extra heat that we have trapped near the planet is equivalent to the heat from 400,000 Hiroshima-sized bombs every day. And once you know that, then you understand why it's possible that we've melted 70% of the summer sea ice in the Arctic, that a continent-sized, millennia-old, meters-thick formation, one of the four or five biggest things on planet Earth has been essentially erased in the course of the last couple of decades. 
What has been the cost to humans in economic terms? Well, so far the cost is large. In the U.S. last year, the federal government spent more money responding to hurricanes and other emergencies than it did on, say, education. But the cost we're seeing so far is just the beginning. By the end of the century, it will cost us about $551 trillion in damages, which is more money than currently exists on planet Earth. So I, I guess you could say the economic cost is essentially without limit. The numbers are so large, I think we can't even really wrap our heads around them because it's inconceivable. Like you said, that money doesn't even exist right now. Yes. One of the reasons that they're so large is that in a strange sense, the planet is so small and getting smaller. We're used to thinking of the fact that we live on this giant expanse, but really we're starting to shrink for the first time uh, the size of our planet. Uh, it's not just that the rising sea is erasing coastline and cities. It's that as the temperature goes up, it gets harder and harder in the continental interiors to continue doing things like farming. You've seen the droughts that have driven people out of Syria's countryside into its city, helping spark a civil war. You've seen the droughts that have driven a million refugees to the U.S. southern border. That's been enough to discombobulate our politics. Now, instead of a million, contemplate the fact that the UN thinks we could have a billion climate refugees in the course of this century. Try to imagine what kind of world, how kind of crowded and small that world's going to be. That's why we've got to slow this down. Yes. In fact, our very humanity is at risk. You talk about it being a problem from hell that we really don't want to tackle global warming comprehensively the way that we should. Ta talk a little bit about that, because you make a really great case on how we should think about it and why we have failed to do anything about it so far. Well, it's always been hard, climate change, because the cause comes from everywhere at some level. Every individual action contributes to it. And because there are so many powerful nations for whom selling coal and gas and oil are key to their economy. So there have been lots of people with reasons to not solve it. Happily, those reasons are shrinking in number. The engineers have done such a good job over the last decade of knocking down the price of solar power and wind power that this is now the cheapest way to generate power around the world. A lot of the things that we want and need to do as human beings, we could keep doing by switching the power source. The computer that I'm talking to you through today is powered by the solar panels on the roof of my house. So it's in some ways not that big a deal, but it's a huge deal if you own a coal mine or if you own an oil well. And those are the people who've made sure that we haven't made progress now for 30 years. They've built a huge and expensive campaign of denial and disinformation and obstruction. And so far, it's been pretty successful. Yes, it's been very successful, the disinformation campaign. There's a big enough percentage of the people in the United States who are not sure that it's really happening or even denying that it's happening. When you talk to people like that, what have you found to be the most effective way to persuade them that climate change is real and that we actually need to do something now? Well, it depends. Now, there are people who you just are not going to reach because uh, their objections in the end are ideological. Happily, 70% of Americans 
think that we have a problem. So job one is mostly to take that 70% and try to turn some portion of it into real active players in the campaign to change things around us. For the remaining 30%, sometimes some of them will shift um, because they'll recognize different authority figures. Roman Catholics have watched the Pope come out in truly powerful alarm about climate change, and that's helped. Other religious communities become more engaged in this problem. For people who listen hard to military leaders, the fact that the Pentagon now takes climate change with deadly seriousness can sometimes shift people. In the end, when I'm talking with conservatives, I usually point out that really what we're asking for is deeply conservative. What the climate movement's asking for is a world that looks a little bit like the one that we were born onto. Some ice at the top and bottom, the odd coral reef in between. Radicals in this case, I think, work at oil companies. They're willing to change the chemical composition of the atmosphere and just see what happens. And they're willing to do it after scientists have told them the devastation it will cause. And they're willing to keep doing it. Even now we can see that devastation. Those guys are radical in a way that um, nobody in the 1960s ever dreamed of being. They're changing the temperature of the earth. When you talk about them in the book, you actually wonder aloud, what could have been if Exxon had only been honest and had not engaged in the disinformation campaign, along with other oil companies, of course. You say it would have made the crucial difference in the climate fight, because if we had just started retrenching 30 years ago, it would have been different. In your estimation, how would it have realistically looked like if we had just thought about this properly 30 years ago? So counterfactuals are always a little hard, but I don't think in this case it's that hard. We know from great investigative reporting that companies like Exxon knew everything there was to know about climate change in the mid-1980s. They had studies just as good as the ones that our great scientists like James Hansen at NASA were relying on. In fact, they believed them within their companies. Exxon started building every drilling rig that it built to compensate for the rise in sea level they knew was on the way. But, of course, they didn't tell the rest of us. Let's imagine they had. Let's go back to 1988, June of 1988, and Jim Hansen from NASA testifies before Congress that climate change is real and dangerous. Let's say that night the CEO of Exxon had gone on TV and said, you know what, our, our scientists are saying the same thing. Which, by the way, seems to me the minimum that any ethical system on Earth would demand of them to do. Had the CEO of Exxon done that, no one was going to come out and say, oh, Exxon's just being a bunch of climate alarmists, pay them no attention. We would have started to work and we would have unleashed the resources and things for those engineers 30 years ago. The price of solar panels and wind turbines would have started falling much, much earlier. We would have stopped exploring for new deposits of coal and gas and oil and instead put those huge sums of money into the job of retrofitting our houses so that they were well insulated. We would not have, I think, solved climate change yet because it is a big and sprawling problem, but we'd be on the way to solving it. And the things we would have had to do would have been relatively modest. 30 years ago, a modest price on carbon 
would have steered the super tanker that is our global economy a few degrees off course. And 30 years later, by the nature of course correction, we would have sailed into a whole different ocean. But we didn't steer off course. We went full steam ahead. Human beings have emitted more carbon dioxide in the last 30 years than in all of human history before. That is totally staggering. But you argue that it is not too late and that one solution is to fully embrace solar power. It seems obvious if you are in a place that's very sunny, like in Africa or in Texas, but not in New England. I love the example that you had of the Burkowskis in Rutland, Vermont. They reduced their carbon footprint by 88%. How did they do that? They did it overnight. Green Mountain Power, our local utility, and one of maybe the only really environmentally responsible big utility in the country, had a program where they went in, and this family bus driver and a teaching assistant at the local public school moved out of their house for a few days, and the contractors went in and stuffed insulation into every nook and cranny of the house. They put in air source heat pumps that are uh, super high efficiency electric heaters that take their heat from whatever heat is in the air outside. And they put a small solar panel in the garage. By the time these guys moved back in three days later, they were essentially producing almost no carbon. And even after you'd included the cost of these new appliances and insulation, their monthly energy bills were lower than they had been before. We can do that everywhere in the country if we wanted to. It's not like these are secret technologies that you need to PhD in physics to begin to understand. These are now things you can get off the shelf at Home Depot, but it does take coordination and financing to let them happen. So why did this utility company want to do this? You know, when I read it, I thought, well, why did that company do that? So if you're an electric utility, it would make sense for you to want to take customers off of gas, that often comes from a different utility and is used to heat your house and instead have to heat your house with electricity. So it makes sense there. But really smart utilities at this point are thinking about how to turn themselves into companies that derive their revenue from energy efficiency, from energy savings. There's even a few places in the country where entrepreneurs and utilities are giving people new washing machines and dryers and things that are highly energy efficient, and then just taking some percentage of the savings that result as their payment, uh, and they're making money doing it. That's fantastic. There's also an element of political will that people have to buy in, and not just everyday people, but the utilities and even oil companies. In general, there is this feeling among the American public that this is an uphill battle, it's not really going to happen, and we're pretty cynical about it. And you argue, actually, that cynicism is really a gift to the oil companies. So one of the other ways that we can combat climate change is to engage in nonviolent movement, a movement that empowers people. Tell us a little bit more about your ideas here. Sure. I think I say at one point in the book that the two great inventions of the 20th century, for my money, were the solar panel and the nonviolent social movement. The suffragists and Gandhi and Dr. King and a million other people whose names we don't know engaged in throughout the 20th century to figure out how you could build movements that were able 
to overcome much stronger powers. In effect, used weakness, the willingness to go to jail, to be hit as a tool for overcoming the concentrated power of the wealthy and the mighty. And I'm happy to say that we're seeing real signs of that spreading now. Look at the rise of this climate strike movement led by 14-year-olds and 12-year-olds and 17-year-olds around the world. There's thousands upon thousands of Greta Thunbergs, and they're all great, and it's so exciting to watch. We're at 350.org doing lots of work to try to take on not just the political leaders, but the financial ones, to take down the ability of the big banks to keep lending hundreds of billions of dollars to the fossil fuel industry. So there's a really powerful opposition spreading around the planet, and it will win. The question, of course, is will it win in time? Climate change is the first truly timed test that human beings have ever faced. So the moments when I despair are the moments when I think we've waited a little too long to get started. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in their report a year ago told us that if we wanted to meet the targets we'd set in Paris, we would need to have cut carbon emissions in half by 2030. That's a tall order. It's not beyond the realm of the possible. We have the technology to do it, but man, it's gonna take all hands on deck. Yeah, it sure is. So from your experience at 350.org, and since you have been in this space for 30 years, what have been the most successful experiences in joining with other humans for the common good, in this case, global warming? Well, a couple of the really interesting and important campaigns I've gotten to be a part of and reflect on. One was the fight against the Keystone Pipeline. When we began in 2011, people said that that was an impossible fight. Big oil had never lost a fight like that. But then more people went to jail than had gone to jail about anything in this country in a very long time. More people rallied around the White House than at any other issue in the Obama years. Eventually, uh, Barack Obama said, no, we won't build it. And it's still not built. Uh, that's good because it keeps 800,000 barrels a day of the dirtiest oil on earth underground. But more to the point, it's good because once people saw you could stand up to big oil, people started doing it everywhere. Now there's not a frack well or a LNG port or a coal mine or anything else that gets built without a lot of people getting in the way. We don't win every fight, but we win a lot of them. Even when we lose, we slow them down. If you slow people down, even for a six months or a year, that gives the engineers the chance to drop the price of a solar panel another two or 3% and make the spreadsheet all the much worse for them. The other campaign that I've gotten to be a part of that really took off was this fossil fuel divestment movement. When we asked institutions to sell their stock in fossil fuel companies in order to make it harder for them to raise capital, we've reached the point now where we're at $12 trillion in endowments and portfolios that have divested in part or in whole from fossil fuel. And it's really telling. The coal companies can no longer raise money. Even the oil and gas guys, Shell said in their annual report this year that it had become a material risk to their business. We're going to amplify that now by going after the big banks and insurance companies and asset managers that are the funding conduit for the fossil fuel industry. If we can plug that money pipeline, then I think we'll see rapid change. Yeah, always follow the money, right? Once alternative fuel becomes cheaper, it becomes 
totally a no-brainer. Nobody would pay to burn fossil fuels if you can get energy for less money <laughs> and not harm the planet. You know, the federal government pays hundreds of millions of dollars in subsidies every month to the fossil fuel industry to keep us burning fossil fuel. It's a politically powerful and connected industry, and so it's hard to drive a stake through it. But the physics tells us that we have no choice. Right. Can you talk a little bit more about the fossil fuel subsidies? Because I think this is very ill understood among the public. Depending on how you estimate it, there are huge fossil fuel subsidies. Some of them are direct. Some of them are indirect. The biggest of those is we don't charge the fossil fuel industry anything for letting them raise the temperature of the planet and all the trouble that that causes. They get to use the atmosphere as an open sewer for free. And that's unlike any other business in the world. If you own a restaurant, the cheapest way to get rid of your garbage at the end of the night would just be to take it out in the middle of the nearest street and leave it there. But we don't let restaurants do that because if we did, there'd be rats in the street and we'd have leptospirosis and on and on and on. Civilization is a lot about cleaning up after yourself, unless you're the fossil fuel industry. And then you're rich and powerful enough to buy your way out of that cleanup. You just get to use the atmosphere for free. And that subsidy is probably the most telling of all. That's a great analogy to bring home to the audience. So as an everyday person, let's say I have already installed solar panels in my house. What are two other things I could be doing? Sure. I'm glad you've put up solar panels and it's important to eat lower on the food chain and take public transportation or ride a bike or drive an electric car. But we're past the point now. The math is dire enough that we're really not going to solve this one Prius at a time. Okay. So what's the most important thing an individual can do really is be less of an individual. Join together with others in the movements that are big enough to try and change the political and economic ground rules. That's why we set up groups like 350.org to aggregate that kind of power, that kind of individual power into something large enough to be felt. And that's what we need people doing. Figure out who's doing good work near you and join in. Very good advice. How did you get going here? And what is the source of your passion on climate change? I think at first, I was motivated a lot by the kind of sadness of the idea that we were just changing every square inch of the planet. I love the wilderness. I live out in the woods. The woods are important to me. And I hate the idea that they're being changed and altered, even in those places we've set aside to protect them. But over the years, that sadness has been replaced by a lot of fear, especially for the poorest and most vulnerable people on the planet. The iron rule of climate change is the less you did to cause it, the sooner and the harder you suffer. So fear and anger. It annoys me no end that the fossil fuel industry is willing to break the one planet we've got just so they can keep their business model going another 10 or 20 years. And I'm enough of a uh, believer in the specialness of human beings to want us to at least put up a damn good fight against these guys. What makes you think that we're actually going to do this? I'm feeling pretty pessimistic about it. Well, I'm not sure we will. I mean, there's things that make me deeply pessimistic. I end the book at Cape Canaveral watching one billionaire after another 
launch rockets into space, there is something disconcerting about the fact that the one thing that unites all the richest guys on the planet is that they want to leave. The thing that makes me hopeful is just that there are so many people engaged in this fight now, many of them coming from places that did nothing to cause the problem that overcomes them, and yet they're willing to join together and fight. And I talk every day with 14-year-olds and 17-year-olds and 23-year-olds and 88-year-olds who are willing to do whatever they can to try and make change. I don't know if it'll add up. We'll see. But it's definitely going to be a fight. And we didn't know even that 10 years ago. So that at least is, is something we can count on. Last question. In what way do you think, if we can manage this, can we strengthen our humanity, our democracy here at home, and make this planet one that is livable and sustainable and will last us for many, many years to come? Well, if we started down this path with an open and sincere heart, I think we could make real progress in a lot of ways. You know, the Green New Deal legislation that young people led by uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez have been putting forward really sees this crisis as an opportunity to deal not only with the spiking temperature, but the spiking inequality on our planet. And to say, it's time that we really not only put up a lot of solar panels, but put up a lot of uh, healthcare resources and educational resources and the kind of things that would allow us to build the sort of more equal society uh, that is really capable of tackling huge issues. If nothing else, the spread of solar power and wind power should knock down some of the unfair authority and influence that the small number of people have who currently control coal and gas and oil. Ask yourselves why the Koch brothers have been the most powerful players in American politics for the last two decades. It's because they're our biggest oil and gas barons. They've made enough money that they could buy a political party. Ask yourself why we pay attention to the rulers of Saudi Arabia. Is it because they've come up with some interesting new approach to the world? No, it's because they control the biggest single share of the world's supply of oil. Once you've put the solar panel on your roof, the power comes for free. The sun just rises in the morning. That's why Exxon hates it so much. If you'd made your business model for 100 years, making people write you a check every month, the idea that something would happen for free is just the dumbest idea of all time. But for the rest of us, it presages a world that's a little more democratic, where our economies are a little more local, where we have a little more money in our pockets, a little more ability to be good neighbors. Those are the hopeful things if we get to the other side of this. Terrific. Thank you very, very much. That is indeed very hopeful. I enjoyed this no end. Thank you for the conversation. The big question remains whether we will be able to save the human game in time before we can no longer inhabit this planet despite the reality that human beings have emitted more carbon dioxide in the last 30 years than in all of human history before, there is indeed good news. Solar panels, it turns out, are a viable solution, including in not obvious places like Vermont. The ease with which the Borkowskis changed their carbon footprint is really astounding. What's more, 
The idea that utility companies derive revenues from energy savings is only the beginning. Since the taping of this interview, the huge financial asset management firm BlackRock publicly acknowledged the urgency of the climate crisis and has started to redirect its investments. Finally, there is real power in the non-violent social movements like 350.org and the many other environmental groups. We really ought to join their efforts because they are actively changing the political and economic calculus to stop the fossil fuel industry from dumping their garbage into the atmosphere for free. Next week, our guest is Lenore Newman. She's the Canada Research Chair in Food Security and the Environment, as well as Geography Professor at the University of the Fraser Valley. Her most recent book is Lost Feast, Culinary Extinction and the Future of Food. We'll be talking about artificial beef and GMOs, sustainable farming and farm subsidies, and what it means to be eating lower on the food chain. We just have such a hard time imagining that we can cause devastating planet-wide impact on the Earth, but clearly we can. In Canada, we recently lost the Atlantic cod stock, which was critical to Newfoundland's economy. We just really struggle with big, large-scale, long-term management efforts to ensure that our food survive. And this is a skill we desperately need to learn. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Zumbu. Additional production by Brooke Sayan. Listen to us online at futurehindsight.com or your favorite streaming service. Music